0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. In case you didn't know, the IAI have teamed up with Routledge to offer you a 10% discount across their whole range of books, not just those that relate to this podcast. Please follow the link in the podcast description for all the details. On Tuesday, we discussed what the role of spirituality and religion was in society. In this podcast, distinguished professor of English literature, Terry Eagleton, launches himself heroically at the twin hornet's nests of modern religious apathy and radicalism. Where should the unreligious look for answers? What has caused the recent growth in radicalism?
2: Atheism is nothing like as easy as it looks. It may be easy enough at an individual level, but for whole societies, for whole civilizations to achieve this condition has proved remarkably hard, surprisingly hard, to have a wholly atheistic civilization. In fact, you could almost write the story of modernity of the modern period in terms of the rubble of failed surrogates for God that it contains, all the way, you know, from reason, geist, science, art, culture, humanity, nature, the people, the state, the nation, and Michael Jackson. (laughs) It's an extraordinary, almost law of history. No sooner have you pitched God out the front door than he's smuggled in the back door again in some thin guise but that's a problem because religion has traditionally played such a pivotal part in legitimating political regimes in other words religion as ideology if you like that our rulers could hardly look with any kind of equanimity on the disappearance of god in the 19th century which is i think one of several reasons why they tried to fill his shoes there was a whole series of doomed attempts to fill god's shoes i say doomed Because religion is a remarkably hard act to follow. Whatever you think about it, it in fact, it's proved to be the single most tenacious, persistent, enduring, global, deep-seated, symbolic system that humanity has ever witnessed. Nothing else, certainly not culture, certainly not art, has been able to hold a candle To it. And one of the reasons for its staggering success, I think, is the way it can connect the everyday experience and habits and practices of billions upon billions of people with the most august, imperishable, transcendent truths. It's the most successful form of popular culture in history, yet I wager you won't find it on a single cultural studies course. Culture. There's two major meanings of culture. It can mean, of course, in the narrower sense of the values and beliefs of a cultivated minority or in the wider, as it were, anthropological sense, it can mean the way of life of a whole people. And in that latter sense, culture could now, in that broad sense, these days, you could define culture, culture succinctly as what people are prepared to kill for or die for. Not many... People are prepared to kill for Balzac and Beethoven, apart from a few kind of weird number of people hiding out in caves somewhere, you know, too ashamed to come out and face the rest of us. But uh, culture in the sense, in the broader sense, culture as language, symbol, kinship, history, community, ethnicity, belief, most certainly is considered well worth giving up one's life for. And the point I'm trying to make is that there are these two separate meanings of culture, But only religion has managed really to bring them fully together, to unite these two meanings of culture, if you like, the aesthetic and the anthropological, into a whole, uniting priest and laity, intellectual and populace, idea and institution, metaphysical speculation and everyday practice, popular piety, ritual and social reality in ways far beyond the capacity of any other symbolic system that we've ever known. Today the most successful substitute for religion is not culture but of course is sport. It's not religion that's the opium of the people, it's sport, yes, with its you know its weekly liturgies, its pantheon of saints or heroes, its symbolic solidarities, its rituals. One of the most you know powerful surrogates. Um, But there is a sort of irony about this, which is this, that after a whole series of botched and bungled attempts over the 19th and 20th centuries to send the almighty packing and replace him with some suitably secularized version of himself, that's what kept happening. Uh, And I I tell this story in a remarkably cheap and extraordinarily attractive (laughs) book called Culture and the Death of God, I think, available in, you know, <laughs> within 10 yards, probably. You know. After that series of bungled attempts to get shut of God, uh, European civilization, at least in part, finally succeeded in, di- in dispatching him to the outer darkness. But that wasn't the famous moment of Nietzsche's Death of God wasn't in the 19th century. It was about a century later than that, when capitalism had evolved into its so-called postmodern phase, when capitalist society had changed to the point, as in our own time, when Nietzsche's ecstatic, defiant clarion call about the death of God could now finally be heeded. Couldn't be at the time because when, as in the 19th century, the middle class is still evolving, still constructing itself, still consolidating itself, it's in need of some rather large narratives, grand narratives, science, reason, geist, progress, humanity, the supreme being and the like. And it's only really when that class has come of age, has passed its revolutionary moment and has settled down to the business of making as much money as it can, that it can then afford, as it were, to go faithless as it couldn't in an earlier phase. And not only afford to go faithless but but actually profit from that in certain ways because religion is a divisive and controversial affair. It's not good necessarily for social cohesion. Think of Northern Ireland the consistency of self and belief of the kind that religion traditionally called for doesn't sit very well with the volatile, mutable, endlessly adaptive subject of advanced capitalism. In fact, postmodern capitalism makes the disastrous mistake of imagining that conviction itself is both dogmatic and authoritarian. Yes? You don't need conviction anymore and conviction is likely to be fanatical conviction is what those guys those muslims over there have we have reasoned beliefs yes begin with a robust belief in goblins so the theory goes and you end up with the gulag yes an extraordinary idea much in currency in postmodern culture there's something incipiently authoritarian or autocratic about the very idea of conviction, which, of course, is why young people these days say like every four seconds. You know, because to say it's nine o'clock sounds unpleasantly authoritarian (laughs) and dogmatic, whereas it's like nine o'clock is suitably provisional, (laughs) (laughs) open-ended, open to revision, and so on. When he was recently asked whether he'd ever had any convictions. Boris Johnson replied that he thought he'd once picked one up for a driving offence. Yes, that's the kind of conviction one has now. Now, obviously, in, su- in some senses, the faithlessness of modernity, of advanced capitalism, is a signal gain in all kinds of ways. It means, for example, that, you know, for example, sexuality is essentially nobody's business but your own. The Purity police are not going to come breaking down the bedroom doors. Sexuality, art and religion, the three major components of what you might call the symbolic sphere of human activity are now privatized in modernity. They're nobody's business but your own. Essentially, you know, they're really like sort of hobbies, you know, like being a being a Methodist or breeding gerbils or collecting life size averages of Homer Simpson or something. And of course, in one sense, that's an enormous liberation. Been, those areas have been liberated from state power, state regulation, but by the same token, they don't matter that much anymore. They're nobody's business but your own. You know, As the man, as the, the wit said, when religion starts interfering with your everyday life, it's time to give it up. Yes. But I think the, the story is, the point is that advanced or postmodern capitalism can afford to go relativist, uh, pragmatic, anti-foundational, post-metaphysical, post-theological, even post-historical, in some ways, as the same civilization couldn't do at an earlier phase, say, in Victorian Britain. Uh, belief isn't what holds advanced capitalism together in any sense, just as it's what holds, say, the Lutheran Church or the Boy Scout movement. Together. Too much belief is neither necessary nor desirable for such an order. It's politically dangerous because it's potentially divisive, as I say, and it's commercially superfluous. As long as citizens row out of bed and get into work and pay their taxes and refrain from beating up too many police officers, they can really believe what they like. And that would have been an astonishing idea for an ancient or a medieval person. The doctrine of liberalism is they can believe anything they like that doesn't interfere with that framework, that doesn't undermine the framework of being free to believe what one likes. In the eyes of Friedrich Nietzsche, who was in a way the grandfather of postmodernism, um, Truly noble spirits, he has himself well in mind here, refuse to be prisoners of their own convictions. You know? Instead, they treat their own cherished opinions with a certain sort of cavalier detachment. You know, They adopt and discard them at their will. One's beliefs are rather more like one's manservants, you know, to be hired and fired as the fancy takes you, than like the organs of one's body. Contrast that view, a very sort of English patrician view, Of conviction, with the philosopher Charles Taylor's point, argument that belief is constitutive of selfhood. To be a self, to be a subject, means believing, being oriented in some significant kind of way. It doesn't have to be large-scale belief. It doesn't have to be uh, absolute conviction. The left-wing historian A.J.P. Taylor was once asked at a fellowship interview at Magdalene College, Oxford, whether it was true. He had um, some um, Extreme political views, and he said he did, but he held them moderately. So you can (laughs) always do that, yeah. Of course, you know, you may still need, not least at points of political crisis, to call upon certain rather grander metaphysical ideals. Otherwise, you don't really need to do that. What, What Nietzsche, I think, was the first to see was not so much that God was dead, that people weren't being grabbed by that idea any longer, but that, and this was really original, what had killed him wasn't some bunch of long-haired atheist lefties, but the stout bourgeoisie itself. It was the very God-fearing European middle classes who'd done God in. Why? Because they created a society, a market society, a commercial society, which was just inherently faithless, didn't need faith of that kind. And now, as it were, The economic base was embarrassingly askew to this rather imposing metaphysical superstructure of God and truth and history and freedom, which they'd inherited from the past, but increasingly decreasingly knew quite what to do with. And in in time, this would be thrown away. Um, The faithlessness of advanced capitalism is built into its routine structure. It's not a matter of what the individual may believe that the market would still be a rank atheist, even if all of its operators were born again Christians. The stout bourgeois is a believer in his his church or in the bosom of his family, but he's a rank atheist in his counting house or bank or office, and as Nietzsche realized, not in so many words, it was he himself who was putting himself out of ideological business by discrediting through his own daily, profane, secular activity, the very metaphysical legitimations that he stood in need of to defend his own way of life. God was dead, but the problem was people couldn't really bring themselves to believe that he was. There was a kind of cognitive dissonance, if you like, whereby he was dead, but they didn't really know. So it was in a way necessary to pretend that he was still alive, to keep him on a kind of life support not least because it was thought wrongly, I think, but it was considered that morality provided the underpinnings of politics, political order, political stability, and God in turn provided the underpinnings of morality. So if you kicked the divine base away, as it were, the rest would come cluttering down. I don't think that's true, but that was widely believed. So rather like Norman Bates in Psycho, the middle class, consumed by guilt and mauvais foie at its own act of dayside, was running around the place, as it were, frantically cleaning up the scene. I mention this incidentally just to show you that I, I know who Norma Bates was, you know. I'm not just a remote and inhuman intellectual, you know, I'm a human being like you, I even know who Rufus Wainwright is. I think I do anyway.
1: and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
2: If the metaphysical superstructure, as it were, no longer worked because people didn't believe in God much any longer or in certain metaphysical ideas, then Nietzsche really said, paraphrasing him, throw it away, don't you see? You don't need it anymore. You think you need all this metaphysical stuff, but you don't. Like a child with his or her blanket, you know? thinks they need it but the most dramatic event that will happen when you finally drag it out of their clammy little paws is they'll see that they don't need it after all you know accept that god is dead and take advantage of his absence nietzsche says to to dance and to sing to manufacture your own values in that void that he's left in the manner of the Ubermensch, of the superman so-called and this as i say was far too radical a proposal for his time where one grand narrative or another was still required, uh, but it becomes more feasible as capitalism evolves into its advanced or postmodern phase. A society whose major, as it were, intellectual and cultural priorities have now been thoroughly secularized. And what was the most, the, the enormous irony then? No sooner was that happening than two aircraft hit the World Trade Center. And a whole new grand narrative, this time of capitalism versus a certain version of Islam, sprang into being at the very moment when the death of history, the death of ideology, the death of metaphysics was being announced with a fanfare. And I think there's a kind of interesting causal connection here, because that sense that really all the grand things were over from now on, it was just going to be business as usual with a few improvements. As the postmodern, postmodernist famously said, the future will be just like the present with more options. <coughs> that, that was announced in the wake of the West's triumph in the Cold War, which is really what it is. Giddy with a certain triumphalistic fantasy inspired by its victory feeling now that it was the only game in town that there was no significant other or enemy uh, it could afford in its ideological complacency to de- declare all that old stuff over and done with yeah and anyway those things didn't fit very well into those it were the cultural climate of advanced capitalism and um, it's all very well for american politicians to talk about God and the family and this great nation of ours and our both our brave men and women in uniform. America is, of course, not only the most one of the most materialistic civilizations that the planet has ever witnessed, but simultaneously one of the most metaphysical, and that's the most interesting coupling and contradiction. Things that you can get away with in the States, kinds of discourse you can get away with, or indeed which are necessary. For partitions to spout in the States, but would just, you know, uh, just in, you can't really get away with in the more cynical and hard boiled milieu of, you know, London and Paris, where people just stare at their shoes and wait for it to stop, you know. (laughs) Anyway, the the irony there, it's a whole series of ironies here, but this particular irony is that no sooner had a, 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 a kind of rather self-confident, buoyantly atheistic civilization, at least in part, arrived on the sea. God was back on the agenda with a vengeance, but not the same old God. You know, uh, this time uh, the God was not on the side of civilization. He wasn't, you know, a, a blue blazered, short-haired, golf-playing God. You know, <laughs> but a kind of wrathful. Alien, dark-skinned god, who belonged to them and no longer to us. The Almighty, it appeared, was not safely nailed down in his coffin. After all, he'd simply shifted address, yeah, um, migrating to the hills of Montana and the souks of the Arab world. And despite his premature obituary notices that had been so smugly and assuredly delivered, his fan club was growing. Is growing daily. Not least. In the evangelizing of Latin America. Fundamentalism, I think, has its source. Uh, the good The good news about fundamentalism is not much good news about it. So we better you know better salvage what we can here. It has its source, I think, not in hatred but in in fear, in anxiety. A lot of hatred, of course, has its source fundamentally in fear. There is a sense in which fear, anxiety, are more fundamental than hatred, which is sort of good news in a certain way. Um, Uh, Those who feel washed up and humiliated by the brave onward march of the transnational corporations of global capitalism and who might conclude that the only way to draw attention to their undervalued existence is to blow off the heads of small children in the name of Allah or blow up play schools in Oklahoma City because let's not forget fundamentalists are not simply over there. They're also, as it were, behind the East Coast intellectuals in the United States, in the Midwest and the South, and so on. What had happened then, I think, is that that smaller, weaker nations um, suffered under the West's new post-Cold War triumphalism. The West now felt it had a certain carte blanche to ride roughshod in its own material interests over them. It was no longer stymied by the Soviet Union, which no longer existed. And that then unleashed a backlash among those weaker and more humiliated nations that were out of sync with capitalist modernity. It unleashed a backlash in the form of radical Islam. And that, that mean, meant, uh, again, enormous with enormous irony, of the closing down of one grand narrative, that's to say the announcement that since the Cold War, you know, a certain grand narrative is over, actually succeeded in springing another, in, in opening up another, the war of capitalism and radical Islam. It wasn't the first time that the declaration of the end of history proved a little premature. I mean, Hegel, for example, was a fine way to start a sentence. He- <laughs> Hegel, believed, Hegel believed with endearing modesty that history had now culminated inside his own head. <laughs> um, but what did that do? It only provoked a whole range of people, you know, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Marx, to react to that and to say, oh no, it hasn't, and thus to pile on more history and to open up the grand narrative again. That tends to happen. Attempts to close history down very often result in simply piling more on. Think of the revolutionary avant-gardes in art of the early 20th century in particular, who wanted to wipe out everything that had come before to create a blank space in which they could create with utter innovativeness. Uh, you know, uh, the act of trying to put a bomb under previous history is itself a historical act, inevitably, which then contributes to the very history that it's trying to annihilate. So there's a kind of contradiction in that. A further irony in this whole string of ironies uh, is that the West itself, the liberal, secular, agnostic West, was in itself in part responsible for bringing this liberal, illiberal, um, theocratic antagonist into existence. Even if, in Prospero's words, in The Tempest, it still refuses to acknowledge this thing of darkness, this raging fury on the threshold that one gets so often in tragedy, it still refuses to acknowledge it as being, in part, its own. Repentance, traditionally, theologically, is opening oneself up to the monstrosity that is oneself, which also happens all the way from Oedipus onwards, the monsters—the recognition that the monsters are not, alas, other people, but are much closer than that, closer than breathing, really. Um, and to be able to do that, an enormously difficult act, is an act of redemption, is an act of salvation, however tragic it may be. West hasn't been able to do that. Prospero can at the end, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. The West hasn't been able to do that. Um, An agnosticism that was designed, among other things, to ward off fanaticism and fundamentalism succeeded in the foreign adventures that flowed from it in actually stoking that fanaticism and fundamentalism. Again, an enormous paradox of our times. So if you like, the West helped to spawn not only secularism, but fundamentalism as well. The most creditable feat of dialectics. Difficult trick to pull off. In the earlier decades of the 20th century, before the War on Terror, the West rolled back, for its own imperial purposes, various liberal nationalists, left nationalists, secularised forces in the Middle East, or in the Muslim world, as we know, it it's slaughtered half a million communists in Indonesia with the connivance of the CIA and so on. Um, and what did that do? Rolling back those largely progressive, left, nationalist, secularized Muslim forces, it created an enormous vacuum politically into which radical Islam could then move. Okay, we've tried that way against the West, doesn't work. We've tried to ape them, doesn't work, let's try this on. For a change, yeah. Um, Jihad is to some extent, not the whole story, but to some extent the bastard offspring of the very civilization it wants to destroy. What we have then, what we end up with, is a world divided almost down the middle between those who believe too much, uh, fundamentalists of various stripes, whether Texan or Taliban, and those who believe too little, chief executives, technocrats, Robbie Williams, um, other hirelings of an inherently faithless social order. And in the middle you have just a very few rare people like myself um, who believe neither too much nor too little, who lean neither this way nor that, impeccably even-handed, superbly disinterested. But we're a... A dwindling breed. (laughs) But the point is not simply that, as Yeats puts it, you know, the the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It's that each camp keeps helping to bring the other to reinforce the existence and values of the other. It's it's a stalled dialectic between them, as it were. When it comes to belief, however, the West is now at a distinct disadvantage, I think, because in the post cold war years, uh, because just at the moment, as I say, when it thought in its overconfidence it could get by on a sort of unholy melange of pragmatism and culturalism, relativism, anti-foundationalism and so on, it was brought face to face, eyeball to eyeball, with an absolutist, foundationalist full-bloodedly metaphysical antagonist for whom those things were not problems at all would that they were would that they were but they're not um, so yeah okay let me just finish by saying that i think this is one reason not often touted for the so-called god debate Yet, because another irony i have to report is that just at the moment when Uh, a postmodern West was in the process of junking large-sized beliefs that had served it supremely well in the past, you know, ideas of science, liberty, progress, spirit, and so on. Just at that moment, some Western ideologues felt the need to reach back into that previous history of the European middle class and come up with a sort of off the peg version of enlightenment. Yes? Um, Old-fashioned fashioned, old 19th-century rationalists like um, who's that, who's that atheist whose wife is in Doctor Who? Uh, Dawkins, sorry. Yeah. Richard, yeah. I that's all I know about him, actually. I just know that his wife used to perform in Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> Old-fashioned 19th-century rationalists, like uh, whatever his name is, and um, by my old, um, my old Trotskyist comrade, late comrade Christopher Hitchens, um, may have all kinds of reasons, some of them very good, for arguing, I think, against religion. But I think um, it's significant that we should be hearing once more a rather clapped-out, reach-me-down version of the Enlightenment language of reason, science, progress, and so on. Uh, just at the moment when it appeared in postmodernism that all of those grand ideas had been ditched, enormous irony suddenly resurrected, and I think that has something to do with this political, the global political situation, because you need the West needs some rather more robust self-justification, self-legitimation than you know postmodern ideology can provide it with, and so it is that. Um, The American death of God thinker Sam Harris, despite his apparent belief that his people are the most upright, morally speaking, who ever stalked the earth, was prepared in the wake of 9 11 to consider a preemptive strike against the Muslim world, which he said might result in the deaths of tens of millions of innocent civilians if it prevented them, he said, from developing nuclear weapons. And Harris is a liberal. Harris is a liberal. God knows what his more right-wing colleagues are cooking up for us. Yes, for the sake of clarity, perhaps I just let me end by saying that uh, when I refer to 9/11, I, I refer, of course, to the second 9/11, not the first 9/11, as I'm sure you realise. I don't. I refer to the World Trade Center, not to the 9/11 that happened almost exactly 30 years before, when the American government and its uh, Agents violently overthrew the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende of Chile and installed in its place an odious autocrat who went on to kill far more people than disappeared and were killed in the tragedy of the World Trade Center. But you won't hear much about that on Fox News. Thank you.
1: We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. What did you think? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our time.